can. But let's consider anyway some of the scriptures which that music from which that music was taken. God gave his only begotten Son out of his love that the whole world might not perish but be given everlasting life. And that's really what we're here about today, is his death. And he is dealing with the recalcitrance, the stubborn, stiff nakedness of Israelites who mentally and in some ways wish the kingdom of God on this earth, and yet we cling so hard so tightly to the things of the flesh. It is indeed a formidable task that God has set for himself to save us from ourselves and the devil. But he sent his son to truly begin that process that began with Adam and Eve, whereby one man sin came into the world, but by one man also comes the resurrection of the dead. So God is going to cause this to happen, and he says in Romans eleven twenty six that all Israel shall be saved. So he is going to accomplish his purposes and his goals. He is our Father. And by giving his Son and taking the risk that he did of the possibility of sin, but through his own power and that of the Son that he sent, that was averted, Satan lost, and we today have a Savior, a high priest and a mediator at the right hand of God the Father to forgive us, to ameliorate our sins and to remove them as a cloud as he says he will do. So it is with both a heavy heart that we come today on the day of his death, and yet with happiness and joy that one so wonderful and so mighty and powerful and his son would sacrifice so much for us. I'm going to go back to the Psalms. And I want to begin in Psalm 101, leading up to the passage from which that last song was taken. I think you will see as we go through Psalm 101, 2, and perhaps part of 3, that the parallel between it and Isaiah 53 and 54 are incredible. I think sometimes people tend to overlook the thought that the Psalms are essentially prophecy. And almost any prophecy you read through the other ones that we designate as the prophets, you will find that there is a parallel scripture somewhere in the Psalms that almost echoes exactly what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or some other prophet might be saying. Even Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. Here in Psalm 101, it says, I will sing of mercy and judgment. Unto you, O Eternal, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. O when will you come to me? 
I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. So he equates God coming to us with us having a perfect heart of service to God. We will not be perfect in thought and mind completely, but perhaps we can have a perfected attitude and approach to God. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. How often in sermons do we admonish ourselves not to watch that which is wicked, to hear no evil, to see no evil? Well, David is affirming and confirming those things right here. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. I'm not going to let it affect me, he says. A presumptuous heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Echoing what the Apostle John said, and that we're not to fellowship with the world, but our fellowship is to be with the Father and the Son and with one another so that we might lift each other up. The world will pull us down and we are to stay away from it. David is saying those things long before Christ uttered them and John and the others in the New Testament. Who privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that has a high look and a proud heart, will not I suffer. So David is echoing the words of God the Father and his Son in a prophetic way here. The very things that Christ would say in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the New Testament through the apostles. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He tells us in Zechariah 2 that here in the end time, the days of the two witnesses and of the gathering of the church, that he will come and dwell with us. But he tells us to get rid of our pride, our vanity, and our ego, our selfishness in the meantime. He that works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that tells lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the eternal. He says that no more will the uncircumcised come to us there at the end of Isaiah 52. We read yesterday, the wicked will not be allowed and that is in the time prior to the coming of Christ. And then the final fulfillment, of course, is when the new heavens and new earth come at the return of Christ. The Father and the Son dwell here in the new Jerusalem, and no one wicked will be allowed in that city. Then in Psalm 102, it says, Hear my prayer, O Eternal, and let my cry come to you. Words that we have prayed and thought a great deal that Habakkuk did. How long, O Lord, before you come and dwell with me and be with me? Hide not your face from me in, a, in the day when I am in trouble. He has hidden his face from us. We'll see that again in Isaiah 54. Temporarily, in the day when I call, answer me speedily. He does say that we must turn to him. We must call on him. And we want a speedy answer when we finally come to the point we really seek God in the way that He wants to be sought. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as an hearth. Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was all alone. 
God the Father had turned His face from Him also, even as He has turned His face from us today. He had all our sins on His back and on His head, and the Father could not bear to look at His own beloved Son on that tree. And He was utterly forsaken. There is a tie-in between these, the feelings David had, and the prophecies of Christ on the stake. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. My enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me down. Christ was lifted up on the stake. I think we may have read that last night in the Passover service, speaking of the manner in which he would die. Or no, it wasn't there. I read it this morning, I guess. He was lifted up, and then he was cast down off the tree and put in the tomb. My days are like a shadow that declines, and I am withered like grass. It says there in Isaiah 40 that all flesh is his grass and will wither. So he withered even as we, like grass, can be cast away and withered up. But you, O Eternal, shall endure forever, and your remembrance unto all generations. You shall arise and have mercy upon Zion. So out of Christ's depths of despair, and out of our modern depths of despair in the church as we have been scattered, and God has turned His face from us, He will turn it around. And that is exactly the story we read at the end of Isaiah 52, all through 53 with the crucifixion and the things he went through at that time. And then 54 gives us the upbeat time when the set time has come that he will favor Jerusalem and Zion again. We'll get to that, but I wanted to read these first because they echo what we were going to today. You shall arise and have mercy upon Zion. He says even in Zechariah 2 that he will arise to do His work, His mighty work. For the time to favor her, yes, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. Says later in the book of Isaiah, let Jerusalem come to mind. We are to think of Jerusalem and its restoration. Now just as the church has been cast down, scattered and splintered and spewed from God's mouth, even so, the original Jerusalem has been barren for many generations. It has been desolate. It has to be restored along with the cities of Judah and Zion itself. So the parallels between what has happened to physical Jerusalem and what is now upon spiritual Jerusalem, the church, are very common. The thread is common between them, and the history is the same. Jerusalem, the city, has been desolate for many generations, as Isaiah 61 and Ezekiel and other places show. 
And it is about to be restored. If we, spiritual Jerusalem, can do our part and turn to God, then the set time will have come and He will begin to bless us as a spiritual body and as individuals. And then He will use us to restore the waste and the desolate places, as He says in Isaiah 58. And we will restore Jerusalem to her former glory. And the latter temple will outshine the former by far. Well, that's what God has in store when the set time is come. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Eternal and all the kings of the earth your glory. When the Eternal shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. Does he not, he say, he will come and dwell with us, Emmanuel, God with us at that time? Yes, he does. And he says that the whole world will see his glory reflected in what is built there. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. Doesn't he say he will turn and hear us when we turn with our whole heart? We've read that many places, perhaps not right here recently. Let me flip over to 113 and verse 9 for a moment. Because we're going to see this one in this light in Isaiah 54. He makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. We have been a forsaken mother, it says in Isaiah 54, but he will restore children to us. So there again you have a parallel you can tie together with Isaiah 54 from here in the Psalms. Verse 18 is a key one. This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Eternal. So David says, I'm not writing this for now. This is a prophecy for a generation of people yet to come. And the God Himself will create them, will bring them forth, will call them. And no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So he has called out different ones today. And he says in the book of Haggai that he is going to stir them up to come and build the temple. We have come to understand that that is the spiritual temple first and foremost. But secondarily, a physical temple has to be built and sacrifices instituted. Not for us, because our Savior was hanging on the tree and still perhaps is in history at this very time on this very day. So we don't need the blood of bulls and goats. But those people in the world who will live on into the millennium will see what conditions are going to be like when Christ returns and sets up the kingdom on the earth. And a microcosm of that will be accomplished here in the end time. It is the only time that the Ezekiel temple can be built because it has not been in the past and the new heavens and new earth are coming when Christ returns with His bride a year after He comes and takes them to His Father's throne in heaven to marry them. So the only time for Ezekiel's temple and Ezekiel's Jerusalem to be built is in the very near future before Christ returns. So this is right written for us as we sit here today. This generation shall not die out until these things happen, Matthew 24. The ones who are called together. 
For he has looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from heaven did the eternal behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death. That would be us. To declare the name of the eternal in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the eternal. He says in Haggai, I will gather them. He says in Isaiah, I will gather you from the north, south, east, and west, from the four corners of the earth to come and build my temple. So here is a prophecy written by David long before Haggai and Zechariah. Psalm 103, Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. We reviewed last night how His blood was poured out on the ground to forgive our iniquities, how by His stripes we are healed, as 1 Peter 2.24 tells us so very clearly. So, the benefits of God we are not to forget. And as he, on that stake this very day, was tortured and his flesh stripped off his bones and his blood draining on the ground, we are to remember his benefits and look to him to heal us, to forgive us, to save us. Who redeems your life from destruction. He is our Redeemer on that stake, taking our sins on his own head, that we not have to pay for our own sin. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And even tells us here in the end time, there in Isaiah 35, I believe it is, that we will leap like the heart, have the legs of a deer, and our strength will be renewed as the eagle. Several places that type of thing is mentioned. The Eternal executes, executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. We had a clarion call yesterday in Isaiah 51, 52, 51, for the arm of the Lord to begin to do the powerful acts that He has done in the past. He has ceased from doing those for a time but he will resume that very shortly now. The Eternal is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. And we'll see that again in Isaiah 54. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Had he done so, this would have been an empty hall last night. The Passover would not have been taken had he rewarded us according to what we deserve. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pities his children, so the eternal pities them that fear him. He took pity on us and gave His only begotten Son. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. That is the part of the message of comfort you, comfort you, my people. And Isaiah said, what shall I say is a a prophecy for today. And he said, say all flesh is as grass and shall wither. And then he said, to say unto Zion and to Jerusalem, behold your God. So the message is we are nothing, but we need to look to God. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Eternal is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him, and His righteousness unto His children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and those that remember His commandments to do them. So He will have mercy on us if we remember His commandments and do them. So the message is very clear here, even as it is in Isaiah 52, 3 and 4. I want to go back to that passage now. That's where I intended to go until the Scripture came to mind as a result of the special music we had, which was very, very timely considering the Scripture that we are in today. So yesterday I ran out of time at the end of chapter 53, and I think... It was a very timely demarcation to finish there, knowing that we were about to enter last night the Passover and the time that Christ was tortured, judged, and crucified for our sake, opened not his mouth to, to defend himself. How could he? He had more sin heaped on him than any human being has ever even begun to sin because he had all of our sins heaped upon his head. Quite a load. I wonder if we've ever really thought out the parallel between the death of the firstborn in Egypt. You know, it came not on Israel. It came on the Egyptians, didn't it? It came on those who were not under the blood of the Lamb. And all the firstborn of Egypt, both man and animal, died that night. Last night, you come to the New Testament fulfillment of that, as that was simply a forerunner of what was to come. And there you do not have the firstborn of the Egyptians dying. You have the firstborn of God dying instead. It's just the opposite of what it was in the days of Moses. Not the Egyptians, but the Son of God. Why is it the opposite? The reason it is opposite is because we have been in Egypt. We have been Egypt. We have lived in sin. We have lived contrary to the laws of God. And we sin every day. I dare say every one of us breaks every commandment every day that goes by. Because at some time in any given day, we put ourselves, our desires, our feelings, our time, our energy, our devotion to the idol of self or to the idol of others. And we lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, lust, covet, for things other than God, whatever they may be. 
So the reason it is opposite is because he represented Egypt. He represented the whole world and became the sacrificial lamb for all. And by the sacrifice of the Son of God, all men everywhere throughout history will have opportunity to have their sins forgiven, washed away in His blood, and preserved eternally forevermore because their sins will be passed over. So Israel had hers passed over because of the lamb, blood of a physical lamb, and the whole world will have its passed over because of the blood of the spiritual lamb. So let's understand. The parallel is there. The Lamb of God would not have had to die had it not been for my sins and yours. And as he hung on that tree today, this memorial of his death, he did not come under the blood because of our sins. And that pretty well sums up Isaiah 53, how he suffered as a lamb, not defending, innocent, plaintive, fearful, scared, and forsaken of God Almighty. Now let's go to Isaiah 54. Because it speaks of the set time that is come to favor Jerusalem and to favor Zion. So after the death of Christ, in this passage of Isaiah, we have laid out here what God is going to do here in the end time. He is going to rise and His arm is going to be the arm of power. His people are going to wake up and the cup of trembling will be taken from our hand and given to those who have been against us, the Babylonians and Satan. And we are going to sit up, are we not? And we're going to shake the yoke of Babylon off our necks, are we not? And the witnesses of God are going to see eye to eye when God turns it around for Zion. And we are going to be vessels of God that are clean. Are we not? And we are going to depart from this world and come together as a gathering of God's faithful that He will stir and bring to build back Jerusalem, to build back Zion to restore her former glory from the desolation of many generations that she has suffered. What a glorious time we live in to have opportunity to do a service to God. And we have dedicated our lives, have we not, as living sacrifices to the eternal God above, that we will do His wishes we will please Him in all that we do. We have looked at the Cyrus of Isaiah 44 and 45 and seen that God will bring a man forth who will see to it that Zion and Jerusalem are built back. He's a carnal man who does not know God, 
the Scripture clearly says twice. So it is very clear that that man cannot be building the spiritual temple of God, nor the spiritual temple of God in each of our minds and bodies. It has to be a physical temple with physical riches that are used because it is a physical, carnal man to whom those riches and treasures will be shown. And he is Ahasuerus, he as Cyrus of old and Ezra and Nehemiah, will do all that pleases God, God says at the end of Isaiah 44, even though he is carnal. Even as he said, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant, so will this Cyrus in the end time be the servant of God to restore physical Jerusalem and Zion. And I do believe, from all the evidence I have seen, that not only did he promise the hidden treasures of darkness, the riches that are hidden in the ground, but has also shown him the very location of the original Jerusalem of the Promised Land, right here in the Promised Land. So that treasure also is being revealed to a carnal man. He showed us where the true Zion is. He showed us where we should go. He has gathered us here to prepare a place for His people to come. But He has taken a human being, a carnal man, to show the exact location of the original Jerusalem, which has been desolate for many generations, and the dwelling place of jackals and lizards. What an incredible God that He can do such a thing. And he says this carnal man is going to do all God's pleasure. I don't know how he's going to make him do it, but he says he is. So I don't worry about it. That man was directed to come find the commandment keepers in cane beds. And we, such as we are, are what he found. We are here to serve the living God with all our hearts, to do His work at the end. Now, this sounds like crazy gibberish to anyone who hears it, but those who have ears to hear. But mark God's words. It's coming, and it will happen. If you don't believe it, stick around. It will happen. Because God has said so. So he says, Sing, O barren, that you that did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the Eternal. Out of this... After the crucifixion of Christ, and I do believe the setting of all these prophecies coming together are around the Passover time, because that's the way God set it up for Isaiah to tell the story. 
whether it's this Passover or next, whenever it is, God has a set time, as Psalm 102.13 tells us, that it is going to be done. He is going to bring children. Didn't he say back there, I think it was in 102, or is it, was it uh, after that? I forget now. 113.9 was one where it talked about bringing forth children, that he would use the seed of our children, was the word I was looking for. In one of those chapters, I had read it just before I came over. I think I read it just now to you. So he says he is going to bring children from the desolate. Hasn't the church been torn apart and become desolate even as Jerusalem has been? And he says in Isaiah 58 that he is going to cause those who will obey him and serve him and turn to them with their whole heart and fast for the right reasons, that they will restore the waste places and the desolate. God is going to use an end-time people that he will gather. He's going to bring more children than we had before. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitations. Spare not. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. The tent isn't going to be big enough to hold them all, God says. He says He will stir them to come in Haggai to build the temple with Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses. So this is the time that it is talking of prior to the return of Christ. Now there is a fulfillment, of course, a bigger fulfillment when Christ and the Father are here in the new heavens and the new earth and the whole world will become the kingdom of God. But this is a smaller fulfillment before that time. And Haggai and Zechariah clearly show it to be in the time of the end, before the tribulation starts. For you shall break forth on the right hand and on the left, and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. The desolate cities of ancient Judah, the desolate city of Jerusalem, which has been abandoned for many, many generations. Not that false one in the Middle East that is a counterfeit of the true Jerusalem. Ezekiel's temple will not even fit over there. The country itself is not big enough. And it has no natural resources. God said that the promised land would have all that we could possibly need. And this land has had that. That one has nothing. You cannot dig iron from the hills there, as he said the promised land would be. It has no gold and it has no silver. But the promised land does. That over there is not, has not, ever been the promised land. It is the city where Satan dwells. It is his headquarters. Does not it say that Satan goes to the bare, the dry, the desert land? That is his home. That Jerusalem is the headquarters of Satan the devil on this earth, is what it is. Now, just that the true Jerusalem is in a desolate and wilderness area today, but it will be restored very shortly. 
And God's people will make the desolate cities to be inhabited, the ones He gathers, as it says here. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed. Neither be you confounded, for you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth, and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. When this happens, worldwide will be forgotten. The shame and embarrassment of having God's church come apart before our very eyes will be removed and forgotten. Because God is going to raise up an end-time latter temple which will far outshine anything spiritually and or physically that was done through Worldwide Church of God. Those people, including us, were then called. God is now choosing and preparing to stir and gather a chosen people to come and build a far more glorious edifice, spiritually and physically. You'll not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore when God spewed us out of His mouth, out of His house, if you will, as a woman forsaken. For your Maker is your husband. Speaking of those that He is preparing, the 144,000 is the Bride of Christ. The Eternal of hosts is His name, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall He be called. When He sets His hand to do this, He will redeem us first, the firstfruits, and then He will set His hand to save the world. And He will be known as the Savior of the whole earth, the God of the whole earth. So what He is beginning in a very small way will spread around the world. We can be a part of the ground floor, the very beginning of this thing, here in the end time. Now, the foundation has already been laid with some of the holy people of old and with the early New Testament church. But this is a resurrection at the end time of the things of God in which His glory is going to be demonstrated in His people in a far more dramatic way that it ever was in the days of Solomon, or of David his father, or even in the days of Christ himself. <coughs> because he is going to be here, and he is going to be giving a very dramatic final witness of who God is, before the tribulation hits, and before Christ returns. So it will not be that they do not have forewarning. God does nothing except He warned through His servants, the prophets. And He is laying the whole story out here. But very few even begin to comprehend the magnitude of these verses and how they apply to today and the coming years. Christ is not coming in May, as is hit and gone viral on the internet, this message from some group of people who have not a clue about May, what is it, 21st? Or others, like those who are proclaiming 2012 is the end of it. No, it is not. The tribulation will not even begin till sometime after that. Because there has to be a period of time when this nation collapses and is taken over, and for some time divided into four pieces, as Daniel shows us in chapter 8. And then finally, one of those leaders of one of those in the latter time of their reign will come and set up 
the abomination of desolation and the true Jerusalem that we, through God and the end time Cyrus, have rebuilt. That is where the abomination will be set up. And those who are in the true Judea, let him who reads understand, will flee to the mountains of Judea, not to Jordan. Thank you very much. Verse 6, For the Eternal has called you as a woman forsaken, and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when you were refused, says your God. We have been a forsaken woman. A woman is, a church is typified as a woman in Scripture. Calls us a woman in, in Revelation 12, that Satan chases when he's cast down from heaven. And the tribulation begins that day. So that's what we have been. We were refused of God. He turned His face from us and hid from us. He could not stand to look at us. And you know what? He cannot even yet until He removes our sins as a cloud and we are clean in Christ our Savior. Then He can stand to look at us. We reviewed that last night. For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. So he says, stretch forth your tent. Lengthen the cords. Make it bigger. You won't be able to handle everything that I am going to bring to you. I will in great mercy gather you. In a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. Seems like more than a moment to me, but... A day is as a thousand years with God. It seemed interminable to me, interminable, but it's almost over. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Eternal, your Redeemer. Never again will we depart from God, will we? This is an everlasting mercy that will come upon us, and it will eventually spread to the world. And we, as the Bride of Christ, are part of it will be used to bring it to the rest of the world, so that He might show mercy on all mankind and redeem them all, not just the fruit, first of the first fruits, our Lord, and not just the first fruits, the Bride of Christ, but that fruit which comes after. And then God underscores it. For this is as the waters of Noah to me. Remember, He said, I will never again flood the entire earth and he put a rainbow in the sky to remind us that that would never, ever happen again. He made a solemn oath on his name that he would never flood the earth again. And we see the rainbow after a rainstorm to remind us of the promise of God. And he is saying here that his forgiving of us and his return of mercy is as the waters of Noah. It is that sacrosanct. It is that holy. It is that sure. That rock solid. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. 
For the mountain shall, be de- shall depart, and the hills be removed. We read that in Psalm 102, verse 26. But my kindness shall not depart from you, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Eternal that has mercy on you. We read in Psalm 103 how His mercy endures forever. And all of the benefits of forgiveness and healing and love and kindness and mercy that He will put on you and me. Can we see why God would make this day the most important day of the year? This is the day that everything important happened to our Lord. There might be a little confusion about some of the Old Testament verses and exactly how they go together. But there is no question in the New Testament that everything important happened between sundown at the beginning of the 14th and sundown of the 14th at the end of the day. Everything important that was important had happened. The Passover was taken with the disciples. They went to the garden. He prayed. They slept. They came and took him, tortured him, stripped his flesh, thrust a crown of thorns heavily onto his head, took him to a tribunal, a council, a judgment, proclaimed death upon him, hung him on a tree, and watched, and jammed a spear in his side, and his blood poured out on the ground. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died all alone to jeers and spitting and cursing and a father who would not look at him. And they pulled him down from where he had been lifted up, wrapped him and put him in a tomb. And the sun went down. Everything of importance had been accomplished by sundown of the 14th. Is this a day to be much remembered? I ask you, would the disciples have been in a mood, in an attitude, at the death of the one who had walked with them, slept with them, eaten with them, talked with them, taught them for three and a half years? To have a big party and a high hand and go to Pizza Hut or Golden Corral and lap it up and yuck it up and have a good time when they had just seen the burial of their Savior? I think not. This is a feast and a memorial. It is an ordinance forevermore of the sacrifice of the Son of God, that the world might be saved. Can we see the love of God hanging on that tree for you and for me? Verse 11, O you afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, 
And we have not been, have we? We have seen the church splintered, scattered, torn, confusion, people and families hating one another, despising one another. We've seen some ministers even saying, if your members of your family are part of another organization than ours, you can't even talk to them on the telephone. You can't even go see your own blood relatives because I'm afraid they'll take you away from me. How God-awful, blasphemous as such an overlord ministry. And it's been done by more than one and is now being picked up by others. Yes, we have not been comforted. He tells us in Isaiah 40, Comfort you, comfort you, my people. And that is the beginning of this whole series of chapters and the story flow. We who have been tempest-tossed, afflicted, and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with fair colors, and lay your foundations with sapphires, and I will make your windows of rubies and your gates of garnets and all your borders of pleasant stones. So I'm going to turn again, Zion. I'm going to make you blessed again. Here is how he will comfort us. He opens Isaiah 40, comfort you, comfort you, my people. And now he's telling us here exactly how he's going to do it. And all your children shall be taught of the eternal, and great shall be the peace of your children. Haggai 2.9 I will bring peace in this place, the latter temple, that the gathering comes to build. God stirs to action. In righteousness shall you be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. God says He will be a wall of fire around us and a covert over our heads. There in Zechariah 2. Much men and cattle will be there. The days of the two witnesses and the people who are gathered to build the spiritual and physical latter temples and Jerusalem and Zion. No terror. Is that covert only from the heat of the sun? Could that covert be from the heat of radiation? Could it be from the horrible things that are beginning to happen on this earth? And the radiation that is right now falling on the United States from Fukushima, Japan. It is there as a protection. And we will not have to fear. And from terror... For it shall not come near you. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against you shall fall for your sake. So if anybody gathers against you anymore, now in the past, he's allowed Satan, he's allowed men to gather against us and try to strip the truth from us, to destroy the very church of God. And we've lived in confusion and fear and torment and frustration these decades since. It will be removed. He is going to again give us leadership we can look to. 
He is going to give us peace and safety, protection, and He is going to come and dwell with us. Behold, I have created the smith that blows the coals in the fire and that brings forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. He said in Isaiah 41, did he not, that he will make us a new threshing instrument with teeth? He repeats that in Micah 4. God is going to give us teeth. Seven, even eight, principal men will go out against the Assyrian who comes into our land in Micah 5. And the Assyrian will run. He will not be able to withstand the people of God. And after that, any who come against the two who are set there as the formal witness against the world, if they come against them, fire will come out of their mouths and destroy any who do such. God is going to do things in such a dramatic fashion, the world will have to know that that is God. This is the heritage of the servants of the Eternal, and their righteousness is of me, says the Eternal. I long for the day when our righteousness is done away. All our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. We are deceitful and desperately wicked. In our human hearts, who can know them? We are a self-righteous, prideful, vain, selfish people at heart. And God is going to replace our pitiful excuse for true Christianity with His righteousness. I don't know that I even comprehend what that means. Because I'm used to dealing with yours and mine. And it's pitiful, isn't it? Haven't we all been crying out these last days asking for forgiveness, for mercy, on our pitiful attempts to try to be like Christ and the Father. And we fall so far short. I long, I pray, I pine for the day that our righteousness is His righteousness. That's the way He says it's going to be. Things are going to be a little bit better in the morning. That's what He says, echoing the words of a song. You know the one, I suppose. Work your fingers to the bone. What do you get? Bony fingers. Maybe things will get a little better in the morning, the song goes. They will. Things are going to change. Ho, chapter 55. Everyone that thirsts, come you to the waters. Did we read not last night about the bread? The waters of life. Christ, he that has no money, come, you, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God is going to provide spiritual food and drink. 
And He is going to provide physical food and drink to those who come from the nations to worship Him and serve Him. The ancient story of Ezra and Nehemiah is clear that King Cyrus, the son of Ahasuerus, and uh, Esther provided everything that was needed for the Jews to go back and build the temple. And so it is. God is going to give the modern-day Cyrus the riches from the ground, the hidden treasures, and he will share them to build the temple and Jerusalem just in time, as in times of old. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He's going to repeat history only in a far more dramatic fashion. If you read Ezekiel 40 through 48, it is a much bigger picture than David and Solomon or Herod by far. We will not need money. It will be provided. Wine, milk, everything that we need. And that's the way it was put in Ezra. Give them everything they need to do the job they have been called to do. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Doesn't that echo what Haggai said? Do you earn money to put it in a pocket with holes? And it just doesn't seem to go there. You can't make ends meet with what is provided today in our nation. America, the dream place, the place where it takes two members of the family or more to work to try to earn a living that is decent. And it is very, very quickly getting worse and harder to do. Pockets with holes. Puts it a little bit differently here. Why do you spend your money for that which does not satisfy and your labor for that which satisfies not. Hearken diligently to me, and eat you that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Most of what you see in a grocery store so-called today is not even food. Over 80% of every processed food in the market today is genetically modified. It is not food anymore. It's junk. It will not give you health. It will not give you strength. Even the best of what you get there, much less the worst, which some still want to imbibe in, will kill you. There is no food. Everything is polluted. Woe to them that pollute the earth, God says in the book of Revelation. He is going to provide that which is good. And we can delight in it, knowing that it is good for us and healthful. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your souls shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. He brings David into it. David is going to be the king of all Israel in the millennium, over all the tribes. But... Even in this end-time context that we are reading today, he is going to bring leadership akin to that of David. Because it was through David that God began to build Israel. Saul didn't do much. He was the choice of the people. That didn't work out too well, did it? So God chose a little runt, a youthful fellow, 
didn't amount to much in the eyes of men. They ran all of Jesse's sons before Nathan, except David. And he kept saying, no, 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 that one won't do, that one won't do. You got any more kids? Well, there is David, (laughs) you know. Nobody would think it would be him. Well, let me see him. That's the one. Incredible, isn't it? How God does what He does. God reviewed the people on the earth. One after another after another. He said, I want that one. Us. The weak. The base. Those that no one would consider could be a witness for God Almighty. He takes our weakness to make strength. In weakness, God is made strong. To His glory, those who shouldn't be carrying the water bucket are going to be the ones He uses to show the world that He is God. How incredible a story is that going to be? David is the one that wrote Psalm 103. His mercy endures forever. All through the Psalms, he speaks of the mercy of God. God is going to fulfill those pleas, those prayers, those emotions of David, those words of David. And he's going to send mercy on a poor, pitiful, little flock that he says, fear not. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Behold, I have given him, David, for a witness to the people. So part of the witness of the end time is going to be the witness of the words of David. A leader and commander to the people. He's going to send us leadership, as he says in Ezekiel 34, not like we have had the overlords in the flock, but as David carried the little lambs in his arm, God is going to, and Christ does, He is going to send us the kind of leadership that will be in the millennium when David himself is there. Behold, you shall call a nation that you know not, and nations that knew you not, (coughs) thee shall run to you because of the eternal your God. We're here today. We do not know people in the church of God around the world, do we? All the nations where those were called under Herbert Armstrong. We don't know them. We don't know where they are, which cities they're in. We don't know their names. We don't know their families. Who are they? Where are they? Can we gather them up? I haven't a clue. I wouldn't know who to go see. God knows where they are. He said, I will stir them to come. It's not something man can do. God knows the heart. God knows the faithful. God knows the ones who have not bowed their knees to Baal. He knows exactly what He is doing. You shall call a nation that doesn't know you. And peoples or nations that knew not you shall run to you because of the eternal your God. And for the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. 
glorified in the sense not of the resurrection, but glorified in the sense that He has come to dwell with and has opened the windows of heaven and poured out the former and the latter rain and given us opportunity. Seek you the eternal while he may be found. Call you upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the eternal and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So we had Christ's sacrifice in Isaiah 53 to set the stage and the tone for Isaiah 54 when the blessings of Almighty God can be poured out upon a forgiven people who can cry out and He will finally hear their cry. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Eternal. Our righteousness now is not of Him, but it shall be. Because we are going to go to Him and cry out to Him and sublimate our desires and our selfish ways to His way and be living sacrifices for the people of this earth to witness that God is God. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not there, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. He is going to make a remnant people righteous, holy, subservient, subject to, teachable by God and those whom He sends as their leaders. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And the mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. <coughs> he uses that kind of metaphor. The whole area around you is going to rejoice before God. Remember how he says in another place how it has come that the, the animals lament and cry out. For God, He is going to restore Himself, His Spirit, His blessings to a small area. And the trees, metaphorically, will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. In the area that this happens, there are thorns. It isn't an area that they aren't. It's a wilderness, a desert area. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the eternal for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Therefore, fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and work. Onward, ye people.